celebrating classics and creating new ones. Only on the Music Vibes Podcast. Now, here's your host, DC Hendrix. All right, so welcome in. This is the Music Vibes Podcast. I'm your host, DC Hendrix, joined by two very talented gentlemen today to talk a little Motown. I'm going to start one a guest that's been on here before, of course, Paul Sexton from You Discover Music. Anytime I talk Motown, that's the guy I go to. And he came on short notice, too. I think I just hit him up yesterday to come on or something like that. So a late night message, they say. We're always right. we're always happy. That's right. I love having you. And then I got Adam White, who is, of course, a author of the book Motown, uh, The Sound of Young America. So I got Adam White joining us today. What's going on? Hey there, DC. How are you? I'm doing good. I guess that's where we start. How's everybody feeling? Everyone, you know, doing okay with this quarantine? How you guys doing? You know, uh, lockdown. <laughs> You're on lockdown? Yes. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh, big yeah. time. London is severe lockdown. Yes. We're uh, not allowed to go out or anything. You know that old phrase? I said, I don't know if you have it there, but we the phrase that we have always said a lot here about people who are kind of a bit too serious is you need to get out more. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of off the map now. <laughs> it's not, not an option, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that was... That was... Get out more. That was my, uh, you know, recommendation for everyone when this first started. But obviously, when things get back more safe, you know, we'll get out, get back to concerts. It's killing me. Oh, my it's absolutely killing me. So, what's happening, what's happening around you, where you are? So we're still. I mean, we're they're opening stuff back up here in the states. Um, we tried. We, I think we were not really on lockdown, but they closed a lot of things this time last year, like March, April. They closed like pretty much everything except essential workers. So they're starting to open things back up. We'll see how it goes. Mm. We'll see. You know, it's a wait wait and see type of deal. Um, But of of course, you know, we got a lot to talk about with Motown. Um, It's Black History Month. So I decided, you know, to pay a little extra homage to Motown, who is very dear in my heart, you know, and, you know, Black America, you know, Black music, obviously without Motown, I don't know. I don't know where black music would be even today. So um, I guess let's start. I want to start with Adam um, because I know this is his first time. So I'm putting him on the spot right away. First time. (laughs) So Adam, go ahead and tell us first, before we even get into Motown, uh, go ahead and tell us about your book that you wrote on Motown and how it was the sound of young America. Well, that was a, a really a long held dream. That was the result of maybe 50 years or so waiting, um, when I first went to London to see a Motown show, um, it was uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips and Chris Clark. And um, it was in a central London theatre. And at the end of the show, I went down the road to the pub, as you do. And who should be in the pub but several of the Motown backroom believers, including a guy called Barney Ailis. And because I'd been following Motown uh, for some years at that point, and I've been reading the American trades like Billboard and Cashbox. I knew who this dude was, and I recognized him. So, you know, I, I don't know, I was 17, 18 or so. I just introduced myself, and he must have thought, you know, who's this kid and what's going on here? But we made that connection, and then a few years later, when I had joined Music Week, which was the British trade paper, um, I had an opportunity to interview Barney in London, and that's where we really connected and stayed in touch from that point on. And for those who don't know, Barney was essentially Barry Gordy's right-hand man. 
he was the guy who got the records played on the radio and got the company paid from the distributors. So he was a pretty essential backroom guy for the company. Um, and he's a pretty great guy. And we stayed in touch. And every so often, um, you know, we would talk about how Motown was. And then at some point about 10 years ago, um, he uh, his son actually got in touch with me and said, listen, I don't know how you feel about this, but um, my dad isn't getting any younger. And if you're interested in writing a book about him, now would be a good time. Wow. And I just seized the moment. I mean, I'd interviewed him before enough to know that he had fantastic memory and great stories. And so this was the opportunity to do it. And I seized it with both hands, spent, uh, went out to see him in LA, spent a lot of time with him there. And then when I was back in London, I used to joke that every Saturday I would go to Detroit for two hours because I would be on Skype for, for two hours with Barney, asking every question I had ever wanted to know about Motown. And in particular, the back room, you know, the, the, the front of house stories have been told uh, wonderfully by a great many people. The backstory is not so much. And so I was keen to do that. I knew he was in a position to tell me those stories and it adds to the sum of knowledge about Motown. And so we got started on the book and uh, I, we were lucky enough to get a deal with a company that also publishes those coffee table books with lots of photos and things which is how the book turned out. So with any luck, you know, it's got both the best of both worlds. It's got, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of photos, which, uh, which speak for themselves. And then a text about, you know, some of the backroom stories and how the business came together and who were the key players. So um, that opportunity uh, back with Barney in a pub on Shaftesbury Avenue more than 50 years ago turned out to be pretty good. Absolutely. Yeah. And if anyone's watching the video or listening to this podcast, just go ahead and scroll on down to the description, click the link and you can get your access to this fantastic book. It's right down in the description Just scroll on down and click it and you got your access. So I guess we can start there, too, before we even get into the actual music. Uh, we can start with Paul on this one. I know this is something that, you know, we've dug into a lot as I'm obsessed with, you know, as Adam mentioned, the backstory like how Motown even got started. Like, it's just amazing. The And this is the reason I want to highlight this, not only for Black History Month, but just also to highlight the grind that it takes and how, you know, how hard you have to work in order to make, you know, your dreams come true. So just, Paul, just go ahead and reflect on, of course, again, how Motown even came about. Well, it's interesting, DC. You know, I think now we're, we're in an era where every possible anniversary is seized upon by the record industry. That's nothing new, really, but it's more, more so than ever. Um, so there's every, pretty much every day, and Adam knows this from his fantastic um, uh, weekly uh, uh, blog that he does and his uh, frequent postings about, uh, about Motown, that uh, every day there's something, right? You know, there's something to celebrate. I think I'm right in saying that today, as we speak, um, is officially the 60th anniversary of um, Shop Around by the Miracles becoming Motown's Allegedly, wow. first allegedly. Yep. <laughs> I think yep. that's right. I think that's today's one. So I that would be right. what, well February done, 61. Yep. Yeah. Um, but that's an interesting thing to, to mention because, of course, by then, as you say, Motown had been doing the, the, the hard yards for, for years already. Um, that story is pretty well told, more so than it would be with a lot of 
companies that that you know didn't make it uh, on a sort of international scale. But uh, the, the the fact is that even in those early days with a small staff, there was. Uh, an awful lot of uh, grind to be done, as you say. And uh, yeah, the shop around would have been one of, the, I suppose, one of the first, you know, proper um, national manifestations of the of the success of of what Berry was was building at that point. Um, my introduction to Motown is, is rather different. In fact, you know, there's no way I can possibly compete with with Adam's stories. My only consolation is that my stories would at least emphasise that I'm slightly younger than he is. But, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we came I'm together. Youngest, and, uh, so we're just we're we're going down the totem pole here. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, we both lose, we both lose to you big time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I should probably mention that Adam and I, who you know, we've been good friends for for many years, and when we first worked together at uh, Billboard, when when he was um, uh, London editor, having been uh, overall editor in in New York before that. Um, in I suppose I've been talking about thirty years ago. I mean, had about early mm. early nineties, I oh, think. Yes, right. Gosh, even, that, even that's frightening. Um, but uh, some time after that, in fact, quite a lot of time after that, you know, we, we found ways of of sharing our, our love for for uh, for Motown and for soul music in general. And um, we actually got to make a, a program documentary together for BBC Radio Two over here. Um, quite some years after that, uh, called the Motown Invasion, which would have been uh, I think at that stage, the 40th anniversary of that first famous first and rather notably unsuccessful Motown tour of the UK in uh, in 65, um, which brings me back to Adam, because, of course, he was there. <laughs> he was one of the ones who did show up for uh, for a tour that a lot of people didn't. Um, and again, that goes back to what you were saying about the early days and the and the uh, the you know, the hard work that was involved, because even after for a long time after Motown had established itself in the States. Um, it, it wasn't known here and didn't even have its own um, identity as a, as a label in, in the UK. Um, so that documentary that we made sort of attempted to tell the story of those <clears throat> early, that early period and, and the lead up to uh, sort of the, the UK launch, Adam, really, wasn't it? Of, uh, That's right. Yes, of it was. Yeah. With this kind of caravan of artists that came over and, and schlepped their way around the UK. <laughs> In uh, in March and April of 1965, where there was when the weather weather wasn't so great, yeah, and uh, the food perhaps was not quite as good as uh, <laughs> as the artist who'd come to town expected. Yeah, um, that's right. That's the, one of the the treats of that program, and I was the lucky guy who got to travel actually to to interview a lot of the people who who'd been on the on the tour. Um, went to the states to do some interviews, including with one or two artists that I know we'll come on to talk about. Um, but the, what I hope made that program slightly different was that it was it was a celebration of the music, but it was also a sort of a, a, a um, examination of the two very different cultures that existed. Um, you know, one from one side of the pond to the other, and. In particular, yeah, as Adam says, you know, they all remember how terrible the food was in the UK and other things that are even more, um, uh, you know, in even more detail, like uh, the toilet paper not being to their, to their, <laughs> what they were used to. Otis <laughs> Williams of the Temptations always remem almost remembered more about that than he did about the tour. <laughs> yes, but we, Pete Moore of the Miracles did remember the pubs, if I remember right. <laughs> he did. Yes, he had this whole thing about um, uh, what was the name of the English guy who who was the MC on that tour, Adam? Um, 
I'm oh, putting gosh. it to the test now. Uh, Peter, yeah. No, okay, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there was somebody, there was a guy who, an English guy who, you know, kind of looked after the artists, didn't he? And was sort of with them on the tour bus all the way. And Pete, yeah, Pete Moore vividly and fondly remembered that that guy took them, as he called it, on the English pub tour. That was his, <laughs> uh, his phrase. <laughs> Yeah, and I know, uh, you know, getting preparation for this podcast, talking about Motown, uh, you mentioned the anniversary of Shop Around. I think, Adam, isn't there a couple more anniversaries? I think you sent them to me. I think Stevie Wonder was one. Oh, yeah. No, 61 is a pretty extraordinary year. Uh, That was the year that that Motown signed the Supremes, the Temptations, and Stevie Wonder. Wow. uh, All within a few months of each other. The, The Supremes, first of all, in January followed by the temps in May and uh, and Stevie in July. So if, if you think about that in retrospect, you know, just those three artists, never mind all the others that came from Motown, to, to have come out of Detroit and to be signed at that point is is pretty remarkable. Yeah, before I know we got we definitely have to talk, un, un, unfortunately, you got to talk about, um, unfortunately, losing Mary Wilson here in a moment. But let's start there. 1961, you mentioned the Supreme Temptations and Stevie Wonder all signed in the same year. Let's start with the Temptations. Now, they were signed in 61, but wouldn't get their big first hit until 64 with the way you do the things you do. I mean, if that doesn't show you know, how long it could take in order for a song to click. And of course, Smokey, you know, began writing and taking over for the songwriting. Um, You know, the the Temptations early days, you know, a lot of people just think it started with the way you do the things you do or my girl. And you mentioning it was in 61 when they were signed. Um, You know, what were, you know, what do you think took them a few years in order to get going? Well, you know, you have to, First of all, you have to fit into the system. I mean, the truth was that even by 61, Motown had developed, you know, a, a certain degree of self-sufficiency in a system that it expected its artists to fit into. So they obviously they had their own studio and their own musicians on tap. So I think each act that came came on board, uh, you know, had to get to work with, with the producers um, and the songwriters and the musicians um to to start to come up with material and you know depending on how creative any of those people were at one time um you would hear the the promise early on or it would take a while obviously in the case of the supremes it it took longer and as you rightly say it took a few records with the temps i mean oh mother of mine was their first recording and you know most people have not a clue about that record. Uh, it was unusually so. It was actually the song was co-written by Otis Williams. It was unusual for some of those Motown acts to be wow. involved in songwriting. But it, it you know it takes a while. You have to fit into the company. You have to fit into the people uh, around it. And um, remember too that at the same time you consider Motown was signing other acts. So mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot was going on at that time. Uh, sometimes you get lucky, you know, sometimes you can get a record out straight out of the box and it can hit. But I think, I think it actually helped all of those acts and many others that they, they gradually came through and put down, you know, put in the time before they really broke through. So they were prepared for it. Um, and they knew how to handle it with Motan support. 
so that when the hits really did start to to come, they could make the most of it and the company could. So the, the hits became, you know, steady, consistent, constant in the case of all those uh, of all those three acts and many others. Yeah. And for the younger audience that's viewing this, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, who David Ruffin is um, if you don't uh, Google, I guess. Um, but a lot of people don't even know David Ruffin didn't even start with the Temptations. You start with Eldridge Bryant, who was a part of the Temptations to start. And then you bring in David Ruffin, the brother of Jimmy. So things it took a while for the Temptations to get started. And you mentioned the Supremes as well and that it took a little bit longer. Um, I want to give you both the floor. You can take turns, but I'll just start off. You know, we unfortunately lost Mary Wilson um, of the Supremes over the past couple of days at 76 years old, found in her home in Las Vegas. Obviously, being a co-founder of the Supremes, so many hits throughout the years. Um, just a very nice woman. I've heard nothing but good things about her. You know, people that's interviewed her, people that's just been around her in general. Um, so go ahead and reflect on Mary Wilson of the Supremes. We, uh, Adam and I, were on the phone at length the other day, as we often do, sort of sharing stories about Mary in particular. Um, uh, Adam knew her far better than I did, but we we both had done, you know, quite a few interviews with her. And I, I, well, I can only really echo what everyone else has said, which is that she was, I mean, the, apart from anything else, she was just great fun. You know, she yeah. was, uh, she had, and this is not the most common of, uh, of attributes, but, you know, she had a sense of perspective, as much as she knew how important what the Supremes had done, was and her role in that was uh, she was very aware of that but she she always struck me as being more down to earth than a lot of uh, artists of that sort of uh, you know stature are um and uh, i think i mentioned in a in a, a tweet the other day that um, when we made that documentary that i was talking about the motown invasion um, and i got to travel to interview some of the artists um both both mary and pete moore of the miracles actually came to the hotel that i was staying at in las vegas because that was near where Mary lived, um, on their own. And that may sound like a minor point, but especially in the case of someone like Mary, you know, a major star, super glamorous and so on. You, I, can, I can't emphasize how rare that is to, for somebody to actually do that without a team or at least one chaperone or somebody there to make them feel good and to check that, you know, the, t the room's the right temperature and <laughs> everything else. Um, so that was a measure of, uh, of, of what she was like. And, uh, I, you know, you just saw that repeatedly. She always had a ready laugh. Um, and I think she'd, she'd grown to enjoy the role of uh, Motan ambassador, which is, you know, is now, I suppose, really required of, of those who have, have, are still around in this, at this stage of the game. Um, there aren't too many, Adam, as you know, uh, you know that, uh, that, that Martha Reeves does that quite a bit now and Duke from the um, Four Tops, of course. Um, but she... Uh, increasingly seemed to revel in, in that role of um, being the keeper of the, of the Supreme's history. Um, Very much. And it was proved, of course, by the, by the way that she, uh, she'd kept, the, as we all know, she'd kept the, and, and collected that large collection of, of all of their fashions and gowns and so on. And um, actually, this is a good point to segue to Adam because he was part of an event that I very much enjoyed being, being at, which was um, only a couple of years ago, right, Adam, where she, you, were on, you interviewed her on stage, didn't you, about that very Yes, subject. that's right. Uh, she came over, well, she had a, a new book published called Supreme Glamour, which was a book about the, the costumes all of those costumes that she'd kept from from the group and had put on display at various points in time 
she'd done that in London in 2008 at the Victoria and Albert Museum. She'd done it with uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Flame, Fame and some other venues. So um, she, uh, she published a book about all of those costumes and she came over, as Paul says, and did, uh, did this wonderful Q&A with me um, in, uh, at the V&A, as we call it. And everything Paul says is right. The humor, the perspective, the balance. Most of all, though, she took really seriously that, that role of keeper of the, of the flame of the Supremes. You know, it was, it was something that she, um, it, it was absolutely central to, to the person she'd become. And um, I think that that's that gave her a reason, um, you know, to to and a focus um, that it wasn't just about the past. It was about bringing, uh, re remembering, and showing people what they had done and why they uh, why they mattered. And among the stories that she she told that night, one in particular that that struck me, she was talking about the Supremes on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they were regulars on the Ed Sullivan Show in the sixties. Um, but it was pretty unusual uh, at that point in time for black artists to be on, on American television to any extent. Sullivan was one of the first programs and first presenters to make, you know, to, to make those stars and those artists a regular part of his lineup. Um, and so Mary told me this story about time, one time she was in Miami, Supremes had, had just done a show, and a, a woman in the audience, a white woman in the audience, came up to her afterwards and said, you know, Mary, I love the Supremes. You're just fantastic. Whenever you're on the Ed Sullivan show, I allow my family to watch you. And, you know, it, it's an unspeakable thing to, to us to hear something like that today. You can't imagine that the thinking and the mentality, but that's how it was. And that's what those artists had to deal with. Um, and so to be reminded of that aspect of how Motown developed and how the people uh, in it, what they did and how they how they prevailed is very important. Sure, it's about the dresses and the costumes and they're fabulous and that style and, and glamour are wonderful. But let's not forget the stories and the hard times that they had to go through to get to that point where today it just seems natural. Back then it wasn't. Actually, it's, it's very sad. I, I was, uh, you mentioned Black History Month. DC, and uh, I was due to be interviewing her again, um, I guess just as a phone thing or maybe like this on Zoom, um, on that subject. I mean, literally, it would have been in the next sort of week or so, I think. Um, so obviously, we we don't get to do that. Although she had started to do some interviews along those lines, I think, uh, hadn't she? She'd uh, yes. you know, begun to to, uh, to do... And, uh, you know, this is ground she's, she had covered before, but it's very important, even though um, I think it's fair to say, Adam, isn't it, that um, Barry Gordy was, was not too keen on the idea of letting the Supremes be too much of a, of a, a figurehead for the civil rights um, Yes, I, I mean, I think most for his, the most part... It was to move them far, further into, into cabaret, for, for one thing, wasn't it? As one of the pop hits. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she's certainly, uh, you know, very engaged and, and vivid on that subject whenever she's been interviewed about it. Yes, but you're quite right. Uh, Barry did try and avoid putting Motown front and centre in the, in the political game. Mm. I think he knew that, you know, there were real risk in that. Um, and besides which, you know, politics is about taking positions and he just wanted people to love the music, you know, love the stars, love the music, didn't matter what colour they were, what background they were, um, just just dig the music, which in a worldwide context is absolutely essential. So 
I think in retrospect, you have to say his judgment was correct, but that's not to forget the kind of things that, that Motown stars and many others of the day had to put up with um, in becoming the stars they did. And, you know, you go back to the 60s, too. I mean, these, these you mentioned what the artists had to deal with. I mean, dealing with, first of all, when they first started those shows in the early and mid 60s, segregated audiences didn't right. even sit together, you know, and then all of a sudden around 68, 69, they're looking in the crowds and everyone's sitting together, you know, yeah. and it took a little time. Um, but that's why I wanted to dig in to this story. Now, I know that you have the blog. I know Paul mentioned this earlier that, Adam, you have this weekly blog that you post on, Motown blog. Go ahead and promote that for us and tell us exactly. <laughs> well, thanks, DC. I think I just, you know, I, I do it because there are so many stories that haven't been told and deserve to be told. And in particular, um, as I said, some of the backroom believers. Um, you know, there's, there's a guy called Ivy Joe Hunter who was a um, songwriter and producer with Motown early on. Um, he also wanted to be a recording artist. Now, he wrote some pretty amazing songs. He co-wrote Dancing in the Street, for example. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, Ivy Joe was a, a wonderful creative guy, but he wanted to um, be a recording artist and uh, in, in the late 60s and started to make an album. And uh, Motown wasn't terribly keen about it, and in particular, the guy who Ivy Joe had to deal with, particularly for the budget to make his album, was a guy called Ralph Seltzer. Ralph Seltzer was was one of Berry's lawyers, um, and he was a businessman. He was a you know his he was in charge of the budgets, and he didn't think that uh, Ivy Joe was hoping for a advance on making the album uh, that would be commensurate with the kind of money he was making as a songwriter. But Mr. Seltzer didn't feel that way, and so. Um, he, he didn't get the money and the album never got released. Now I mention it now because there's a very real prospect in 2021 that that album may, may actually be released from the vault. Mm. But it was an illustration of, of some of the backroom battles that people had to go through. Some of the gatekeepers uh, who had Barry's trust, um, uh, who, who, you know, ran the business day to day. And those are some of the stories that I try and tell in the blog because they haven't been out there before, as well as some of uh, those that have. And obviously, uh, you know, Mary's, uh, Mary's story, story but will be one of those, um, go, you know, digging into her background and that remarkable career, front of stage, front of house and backstage. Give us the title of the blog, Adam. Come on, plug away. That's right. Uh, well, the blog is called West Grand Blog. Surprise, surprise. WGB a play on West Grand Boulevard, which, of course, was where Motown in its first incarnation was, 2648 West Grand in Detroit, the Motor City. It's absolutely perfect. I'll go ahead and throw that in the description as well. Go ahead and scroll down, click that. I mean, there's so much access. And, Paul, um, you know, go ahead and plug. I always let everyone that joins plug what they got coming up because I appreciate <laughs> people that work so hard like, like yourselves. Just, you know, if it wasn't for people like – People like you, I wouldn't have, you know, help with content. I wouldn't, you know, be learning more about Motown or things like that. So, well, I'm going to throw in here and, and uh, with Paul, because as an example of the kind of writing he does for a, a site called music, you music.com. You discover. Um, you discover, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, you discover. And he wrote a piece recently about Marvin Gaye's uh, song called You 
which was one of Marvin's lesser known tracks. And in the piece he wrote, he reminded us that, that Gladys Knight and the Pips sang in back. Now, I had no idea of that. I mean, I, I must have lived with that record for years and years and years, <laughs> had no idea that, that they were there. And suddenly, here we are in 2021, that sort of information can still come out. So all credit well, to you. Next. <laughs> Thank you. I can't quite believe that. DC, you captured a moment in history. I told Adam something about Motown. He didn't know. <laughs> it's never happened before. Breaking news. That, that, that was it's a good example, though, of, of you know, that, that, that's fun because you can, um, on sites like you discover, um, dig a little deeper, as Adam does with the blog. And, you know, I'm often looking for anniversaries of, of uh, records that at the time were, were you know, often quite big hits. <clears throat> but have kind of got a little bit lost in the shuffle. And especially when you get to someone like Marvin, goodness me, I mean, there's so many yeah. that you look down the list and think um, there's, there's a lot here that don't ever really get played. Um, and you was a, a good example. I'm trying to remember the name of the B-side, Adam, because I really like that as well. Is it called? Um, it wasn't at last, what, was it? Change What You Can or something. Oh, Change What You Can, which is change on the can. album. Yeah. Yeah. That was In the Groove was the yeah. name of the album, Change it's What it, You Can. That's a great that's track. That's right, yeah. Yes. And only ever a B-side, you know, and um, I mean, that's that goes to the um, it tells you something about just the incredible wealth of uh, of material that was. And by then, the, the just fantastic um, levels of quality control, which are going. I always think the quality control sounds a bit too sort of um, uh, clinical. You know, I suppose it was clinical in, in one way, but what it resulted in was just this amazing, um, amazingly high standard of, of, of output right the way through those years. And. and certainly well into the 70s, you know. Yeah, and DC, the thing with quality control is a point worth making, is that the woman that Barry Gordy gave the job of running that department, for the most part, was Billie Jean Brown, um, young woman from Detroit who, who joined Motown early on in a part-time role just to help them write press releases and biographies. Mm -hmm. But she knew her music, and she could be quite opinionated, quite mouthy. Um, but... Barry understood that, that this was a young woman who really knew her stuff when it came to music. So he put her in charge of that quality control department. Now, obviously, there was a learning phase. She, she grew into the job, but she came, became absolutely essential to the way, that, the way that department ran and how it brought music into the meetings that all of the writers and producers and BG himself and some other key people would listen every Friday morning to determine what would what was good enough get to get released. And Billie Jean was somebody who ran that meeting, who brought in what she thought were the right tracks to be listened to, and um, who had Mr. Gordy's trust completely. As it's another example of the kind of people behind the story. So you think quality control, and as Paul says, it sounds a bit anonymous and so on, but there were people behind it who knew what they were doing. And those are the stories I think that we, we all love to to know about and to make sure get out there that it's it's there were other people involved in making that company become the sound of young America. You know, we did. I think we had. That's a great point to mention that the the, the Hits, uh, Hitsville documentary that came out last year, well, a bit before that, maybe twenty nineteen, mm -hmm. um, about you know the, the the making of Motown, wasn't it? About the the early years, and I think I'm right in saying that it it begins with a clip from the audio of one of those quality control meetings, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's spine tingling. I mean, I just, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's, it's very well illustrated. There's some 
captions on the screen and so on. But it's, um, you know, they've had to boost the audio a little bit. It's a bit on the lo-fi side, but in a way that kind of adds to the... Um, oh, it, it absolutely does. And it, and it is that moment that you mentioned, Paul, is in a way the single most important uh, part of that documentary because that audio had never been heard before. No. We, we, you know, we've been given to understand that Mr. Gordy has all those tapes somewhere in a vault, <laughs> but it was the first time we'd ever heard such a thing. So anyone who was into Motown and knew about the quality control meetings and what happened in them, but, you know, it was, we'd never heard anything. So mm. just to hear that moment, talking about my girl, casting yeah. a vote, and somebody says, you know, eh, it's not so good, and <laughs> Barney Ellis says, that's a hit. And yeah. someone, you know, you, you get that back and forth. So one day we hope to hear more, but Paul is absolutely right. right. That was an extraordinary moment. Yeah, and I thought it was pretty great. You know, I really enjoyed the, the doc. I don't know how you, how you guys felt. Well, actually, I do know how you felt. But, it's, you know, you happen to be in it as well. <laughs> there is that. Um, but um, I thought they did a good job, you know, at telling that early story. And the other great moment, which we had discussed before, is that uh, that wonderful argument between Barry and Smokey. Yep, Barry. Uh, yep. They have. And, I don't, you know, I don't know whether it was staged or whether they kind of re-ran it or whatever happened, but it's just, it's, it's wonderful because, you know, they're actually betting money about a, a, a fact in Motown history, which is wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think it also illustrated how 50, 60 years on, we can still learn things about it. And what was apparent in a way that perhaps no other medium can show you about that film and that particular moment with Barry and Smokey was the nature of their relationship, the closeness, the mm -hmm. friendship. It was more than friendship. It was brotherhood. Mm -hmm. But when you see that just going on in front of you, um, you realize how important that relationship was to the way the company grew and how much they depended on each other to, to advance. So uh, to, to discover in 2019, which was when that documentary came out, things that, you know, you really didn't know or fully understand before is, is just proof of how it is still possible to learn about history many decades later. At universities, there should be Motown classes because there's ongoing... Oh, yes. Every day, every day you could discover something new that you didn't know before with Motown. And now it's time to put you guys on the spot. Okay? Uh -oh. I'm you on the spot even more here. So let's talk East, most essential Motown songs. Okay, so there's obviously there's so many to pick from, but I want you to narrow, I want you to narrow it down if you could. Uh, you want to go three or five? You want to go five? <laughs> you make it 50 <laughs> so if someone, so someone is going into listening to Motown records all right and you give them five songs to listen to oh, to give okay. them a good background of Motown I'll let, so I'll these need to be these but, need to be hits really don't they they need to be kind of right. um, you know wide ranging ones not obscure b-sides that we've been talking about right <laughs> right um, you go first well, okay. Paul. can I start <laughs> shall I go first I mean you know there's going to be some <laughs> obvious titles in here uh, we'd be talking about Marvin. Uh, you'd have to say what's going on, I think, wouldn't you? As a, as a as one of those, uh, both the track itself and the album. Um, you mentioned you asked what's coming up, uh, DC. The the 50th anniversary of that album is is looming large now. I think it's May, isn't it? Um, we'll be talking about that. But uh, yeah, both as a track and as a as a an album and as a, as a, a statement, you know, creatively and. Observation about the state of the world, uh, you know, they don't come much more um, depressingly, you know, prescient than that, I don't think. I'd have to agree, Paul, with, with what's going on. Um, I, 
my my five would include Bernadette by the Four Tops uh, for two reasons. Firstly, you know the Four Tops were gods. I mean, they they were just extraordinary. Levi Stubbs, that voice is is. You I was going to say, baby, I need your loving. That was one. That was when I was thinking about. <laughs> Okay, and and you've got so much to choose from. You've got reach out. You've got ask the lonely. Yeah, I mean, yes, ask you, the lonely you just, way up yeah, yeah. You just wanted to give us five. <laughs> <laughs> give five on each group. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing about Bernadette was both the Levi's performance, that incredible moment where the backing drops out, and you just you just heard his voice. You know, just extraordinary. Um, Extraordinary vocal, but the other thing about Bernadette is the bass line. It's James Jameson's bass line, and you cannot believe that a musician can play an instrument in the way that you hear on that record. And it's typical uh, an example of of what is underneath the great voices of Motown as well as on top. So I, I would include Bernadette in my five. Yeah. So I'll go to the Temptations, I guess. Um, again one out of 50. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of, uh, well, all, the whole catalog, of course, but um, the stuff they did with Norman Whitfield uh, and, oh. and Barrett Strong, um, from which you could, there could be any number. I think I'd probably go for Ball of Confusion um, yeah. because, well, for lots of reasons. It was, a, it, you know, they, they were getting into a very different sound by that point, of course. Um, and, which I th thought was quite a, a courageous thing to and, and controversial thing to do. Um, and I just love the social statement, you know, that, that is inherent in that, in that song. And, and, you know, it's great when you get period references in songs as well, isn't it? In lyrics of, of songs, you know, so there's that thing about the Beatles new record is a gas, you know, um, it's almost thrown away, but it's there kind of just thrown into the, into the lyric. Um, and it's just one of many examples of that incredible sort of interaction that, 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 that took place in, in The Temptations. It's, you know, often say this about the real favourite records in, in, in any genre. You know, when you listen to them, you, you realise everyone is doing something great. You know, you could say it about records by The Stones or The Who or, or other bands in, in rock. Um, it, it's complete cohesion, you know, and uh, you take one part of it away and the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> and so that's, that, that's one for me. I go back a little earlier with the temptations uh, uh, and uh, endorse everything you say, Paul. For me, I think the finest temptations record and the one that's in my top five is Since I Lost My Baby, which mm -hmm. was ri written by Smokey. Um, and David Ruffin is singing lead and the heartache in that voice, mm -hmm. just the emotion that pours out of that song and that record, um, for me, exemplifies the best of the temptations and in particular uh, why ruffin was so so brilliant and why that sound was so his sound what he brought to the group was so essential um since we're on the, the subject of ruffin the other one i would include in in my top five would actually be a solo track that he made um 1976 called walk away from love Yes. Give me to it. That was going to be in mind too. Okay. Um, I mean, again, the way he sings and the way he climbs out the, up that register at that point. Um, I spoke to Charles Kipps, who was the writer of that song, and he told me about the time he was in the studio when Ruffin was recording it. And he did it. He, he did that thing in one take. And none of them in the in the room in the studio could believe it that he just went up to that point where he goes up to the note, holds the note. It was done in one take. It's like yeah. just it, a measure of the man's talent, but just an utter magic, complete, extraordinary piece of yeah. work.
it's one of my favourite moments on on record by anybody ever. That I mean, he changes octave, he goes up an octave in the middle of a word. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I did it. Breaks my heart is the, is the phrase, isn't it? He yeah. does it again on a track, a lesser known track, album track from that period called The Double Cross, mm. which Adam's heard me go on about before. Um, mm. it, you know, it's one of those, it's a bit of a sort of same sort of lyrical idea as um, Should Have Been Me, the, uh, Yvonne Fair. You know, it's, um, uh, he just has that way of almost to make it more interesting for himself, of singing around the melody. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a, there's a particular line in that song where he does something similar. You know, and just uh, starts on one octave, and then the next thing you know, he's, he's up on the next one. <laughs> yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing scene. And speaking of voices, you have to talk about Smokey. And yep. again, from an extraordinary body of work, pick <laughs> one out. But it, but I think for me, it would have to be Ooh Baby Baby. That was the just one. just because of the performance, just that, just extraordinary the way he holds the notes, the the sound, but everything about it, it it is just. The, the romance of the song, mm-hmm. the performance of the vocal, yep. the, the, the fragility that you often hear in a way in his voice. but um, And that's somewhat in the shadow of Tracks of My Tears because, of course, Tracks was the next, the next single by The Miracles at that point. Um, but uh, for me, it, it, Ooh Baby Baby is, is one of the masterpieces and one of my top five. We haven't mentioned Stevie yet, have we? I mean, the, the, having mentioned the, the name, I, I'm, I'm immediately struggling because, you know, you really, it could be any one of dozens, <laughs> couldn't it? Um, you know, I mean, from that incredible run in the 70s, it could be anything from, uh, you know, for me, uh, Love's in Need of Love Today, um, Heaven Help Us All, uh, um, you know, any of those amazing singles from Key of Life. <laughs> yep. I, very hard to, to, pick, <laughs> yeah. uh, to narrow it down. But you know, yeah, yeah. I'd actually go for "Loves in Need of Love" today because awesome. that's a message that that yeah. doesn't, you know, <laughs> that doesn't lose out the test of time. And that, in the way that what's going on has done, uh, yeah. you hear that lyric; it's just as true today as it was uh, when it was the opening track on on "Songs in the Key of Life," which is again a piece of work that that best stands. Album. Rivals' best know. album ever: "Songs in the Key of Life" or "What's Going On." For me, yeah. I mean, you can you can ask. I'll give you one answer today, and probably have a different one tomorrow. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's between those two. So just one more. <laughs> so the only ones I would add, um, going back a little bit of a ways, and I'm really glad you guys mentioned Barrett Strong because mm-hmm. back to money. Yeah, um, you know that's that's an early hit that I know resonated with me. One of the first I ever heard. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really glad that Adam mentioned the four tops. Um, the Supremes haven't been mentioned yet either. Um, yeah. I mean, you could make make your pick there. Baby Love, you know, again, one of 50. Yeah, uh, yeah. one of 50. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, actually. Go ahead. We, we were talking about Mary, and, and um, one of the things that that she said at that, uh, that talk in London a couple of years ago that struck me um, was how uh, the Supremes uh, at one point, the Supremes were one before, you know, before the success, before the huge success. Mm-hmm. Um, but in their first couple of years of making hit records, they were still a trio. They were, you know, they were very much the three of them. And she talked about um, that quality and how they all felt they were all part of, of, of the team, if you like. Um, and the record that exemplifies that for me is Stop in the Name of Love. Yes. Because if you watch the, 
the video which you can still find today of them singing that doing that incredible choreography where they throw their arms out and so on but there are the three young women they're standing together they're all aligned they're not one isn't in front of the other they are just one they are the supremes and they're doing a song that you know is remarkable if only for its title but certainly for its performance and i think you know in an incredible canon of work uh, for me it would be stop in the name of love yeah i think i would say we were talking about mary and I, just to uh, i'd like to put in a vote for um to sort of counter the 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 i suppose the easy um assumption that the supremes finished when diana left you know and to, and to put in a vote for some of those great records several really very good records that the Supremes made after that, some of which were bigger hits in the UK than they were in the in the US, I think. Um, and I, you know, you probably would go to something like Stone Love from from that period. I mean, it could have Floyd Joy, or you know, there's there's quite a few others, but I think Stone Love is it's a wonderfully atmospheric record, and uh, you know, um, with Mary as, uh, as as a key part of it, um, you know, it's certainly not true to say that they uh, they just uh, expired when when a certain person left the left the lineup. Mm -hmm. So DC, what about you? Haven't given us your top five yet. Yeah, so right. we definitely agreed on uh, the four tops. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with "Baby, I Need Your Loving" though. Okay. I'm gonna mm -hmm. go with that. I'm gonna go "Temptations," my girl. I'm gonna go "Very Strong Money." I'm gonna go "Mark the Reason of Vandellas Heat Wave." Okay. And I'm gonna go "Mary Wells, My Guy." Oh, yeah. You see, here we go. This is why we, never mind 50, we need 100. <laughs> Mind you, you're, you're, oh, okay. more, you're much more um, decisive than we are. You're straight <laughs> That's out. true. Like, no. <laughs> like, of course, though, it'll change tomorrow. You ask me again tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, That's right. Guys, yeah. thank you so much for coming on today, talking some Motown. I really appreciate it. Taking time aside, I know you guys are on lockdown, but I, I'm sure you're still busy. I see... Paul still writing articles, Adam writing blogs almost every day, it seems. So um, I just want to thank you both so much for coming on and talking Motown with me. I appreciate it. Real pleasure, DC. A lot of fun. Thank you. And thanks, Paul, again, making the return to Music Vibes. Thanks Great to be back, DC. Second or third time? I can't I think remember. it might be the third. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, any, any time. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Take care and be safe, okay? You too. See you. So long. Time Travel with DC Hendrix on the Music Vibes Podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify on your mobile device. Podcasts by Federated Media. Podcasts by Federated Media.